some of the doctors, several of them, early on said, the wife is overly concerned because both his parents had Alzheimer's. And the year before he was diagnosed, they said he's even better than he was last year. No further investigation required. And when we hear that a test is normal, what do you do? Yay, we're okay. We want so much to believe that he's fine, even though we know he's not, that we go with that. But the reality is we know, but we don't want to know. Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast. Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. Where we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. A few months after their 50th wedding anniversary, Helene Berger's husband, 80, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. When the doctor gave him the news, 80 replied, I don't want to live anymore. From that moment on, Helene faced her husband's diagnosis, determined to find creative ways to make their lives as fulfilling as possible for as long as possible. It wasn't always easy, but Helene learned a lot along the way. Fortunately for us, she took notes, which laid the foundation for her new book, Choosing Joy, Alzheimer's, A Book of Hope. Helene Berger joins us from Miami to tell us how her husband went from the depths of despair to engaging with life and how both of their lives evolved from bearable to pleasurable, in Helene's words. Helene Berger, welcome to the AgeWise Podcast. Thank you. So you grew up in Brooklyn. You got married at age 19. Tell us about your early life together with 80, just to put this in context for our listeners. 80 and I met in 1954 at the Lido Beach Hotel. I had just completed eight weeks of intensive summer stock at Tufts Arena Theater. I was sitting near the pool and wanting to be alone and wanting just to <laughs> become whole again. And my mother came over and said, Helene, that nice young man keeps coming over to talk to you, and you're not giving him the time <laughs> of day. And with that, she went over to 80, who I hadn't really met, and invited him to lunch with our family. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, wow. The rest is sort of rest history, history. But, but what happened was when we had our first official date in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and he came and I was still upstairs, he started playing the piano, Mozart, Beethoven, Rachmaninoff, and my mother <laughs> was head over heels and loved him <laughs> before I was. That's how we met. Uh-huh. <laughs> and nine months later, we were married. And the reality is we didn't really know each other that well. And it, truly, it was just dumb luck that he was what he was, and, and there were rough times during the marriage in the beginning. But we both knew the other one was worth it. That's such and, an interesting point that you make. I think that might be a generational thing because, you know, nowadays we can find out pretty much anything about somebody. And it happened in your generation and my mom's generation. You're a little bit younger, well, significantly younger probably than my mother. But the two didn't really know each other. I know when my parents got married, they just kind of went on a hunch. Like the two of you, you and Aiden exactly. kind of knew, okay, we're going to make this work. There's something there. Exactly. And and let me tell you, when I brought him up to Cornell and we were engaged, one of the sorority sisters said, how do you know? And I looked at her and said two words, he's good. And later on, I berated myself 
because I thought, if that's all you can say about the guy you're marrying, why are you marrying this guy? I mean, it. I really was, I tortured myself. And as the years passed, I understood that that gut reaction was the most profound thing I could have said, because as life worked out, that was the most important thing. And so I'm fast forwarding here. I know that AD was on the verge of retirement when he was diagnosed. How did the two of you envision your time together post-retirement? Well, as any couple, if they have kids who seem successful, and, and ours were, and grandchildren who seem to have excellent potential, mm-hmm. you know, you think you're going to take the time to enjoy life and live it fully. And the interesting thing for me is I knew clearly that Aidy was not the man that he was long before the diagnosis. So what were I some mean, of the signs? Yeah, tell me. And he knew it too. He mm. was brilliant and would write everything down, wrote everything and wouldn't throw it away. Mm-hmm. And the signs were there. Actually, as I started looking at the records, when I realized I had no intention of writing a book, none. Mm-hmm. But when I realized, for me, these were just notes for me, when I started looking back, I was stunned that I think it was 24 years before his official diagnosis, we went for testing. And eighty went willingly because he knew that he wasn't what he was. And one is never prepared. Even though all the signs were there, it's still a shock when it happens. Mm-hmm. You're never, ever, ever prepared. And the doctors send you to a place to be tested. And when he was tested, the testers didn't know that his IQ was off the charts. And in the testing, he came to average. They said, he's fine, nothing to worry about. So they were comparing him to the general population. And some of the doctors, several of them, early on said, the wife is overly concerned because both his parents had Alzheimer's. And the year before he was diagnosed, they said, he's even better than he was last year. No further investigation required. Wow. Whatever. And when we hear that a test is normal, what do you do? Yay! Yay, we're okay. We want so much to believe that he's fine, even though we know he's not, that we go with that. And had I to do over again, I don't know what would have been different. I mean, I don't know what I could have done. But the reality is we know, but we don't want to know. Right. So how did your grown children react to the diagnosis, Mark and Bonnie? They weren't surprised. Even though they lived in another town, they were so supportive. Mm-hmm. So supportive. And I didn't walk across the street without checking, especially with my son. Mark is a cardiologist, mm-hmm. so I was very blessed to have that support. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting that you read a bunch of heavy books on the Holocaust rather than upbeat, sort of sunny books to stay positive. Why did you go in that direction? Well, first of all, it's a subject I'm interested in, Mm -hmm. but it was so important for me, even though my friends said, you should be reading something light and happy, and I'm not at all minimizing the problems of Alzheimer's. But when I saw the kind of suffering that thousands and thousands and millions went through, it put what I was going through with a kind, gentle husband who was cooperating, it put it into perspective, and it helped me. If people could survive what those people, the degradation, the starvation, the freezing cold, the stripping of their lives, if they could survive that, I'm going to do okay with this. It helped. Wow. So I mentioned in the opening that after his diagnosis, AD said, I don't want to live anymore. I wonder yeah. if you could speak a little bit about how he evolved from despair to accepting the diagnosis. And that's basically what the book is about. Mm-hmm. Because he went down the usual path, really, for the first year or two, with frustration, with annoyance, with 
patients and many of the things that we see. Never violence, fortunately for me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he was going down that path. And we were talking. He looked at me with sort of an annoyed look. And my first thought for a few seconds was, that's not so bad. I can live with that. And then something inside me screamed, no, you can't. And I remember from the very beginning how I handled it was a pat on his cheek and saying to him, dear, do you have any idea how much I love you? (laughs) Big smile. And then I said, when you looked at me that way, it was very hurtful. I'm really trying hard to do everything I can to help. And that look didn't help me. And he looked at me with full comprehension and said, I'm so sorry, dear. Please tell me if I ever do that again. And so I found that I reached him with honest talk. Hmm. I never said one thing that I didn't believe that wasn't true for my heart. And because he cared about me, he wanted so much to please me, and he wanted to help. Even before he was diagnosed, we were on a ship, on a cruise, I mean, years before. And he was having problems adjusting to a new space where things were. And he couldn't find his medication. He thought somebody stole it, and that scared the life out of me. And then he said, someone took my pajama top. And he was chilly, and he put his pajama top on over his shirt. And I could have put him down. And I could have said, look at you, you're wearing it, you know, mm-hmm. you jerk. Right. And I didn't. My instinct was touching again, touching his face, sweetie, you're wearing it with a smile and a laugh. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, my goodness, but I think the way I started handling him instinctively if he knew it was on, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be acting that way. Instinctively, mm-hmm. from the very first, and it started to turn it around. And throughout the whole process, I don't think he ever felt alone in it. He knew that we were a team, that I was there to support him in any way I can. And it wasn't until much later that I was aware of what I was doing. I wasn't uh-huh. aware of what I was doing when I said that to him. It just was instinct. But when I became aware of what I was doing, and the thing that worked for me particularly was this, I watched him keenly, and every time I found something that worked, instead of saying, oh, that was a good thing to do about this, every time I found something that worked, I tried to think of what is the principle behind it, what is the philosophy, why did this work, so I could apply it to something else. Hmm. And there are many examples of that in the book, two quick ones. It was clear before he was diagnosed that he shouldn't be driving anymore. And I didn't know how to handle it. And I had just taken him to a wonderful, wonderful psychiatrist in Massachusetts. And I told her that I had this problem. And what she did, very nonchalantly, very matter-of-factly, you know, Aidy, you're on some new medication now. It might be a good idea for you to stop driving until you see how it affects you. Hmm, interesting. He understood the reality of that. He Mm -hmm. said, "Uh uh-oh. Okay, no fight. And months later, we were going to a concert, and someone said, "Ad, you driving home?" And he said, "No, I don't drive anymore." That was the end of it. Huh. I, I, wow! I had to hold back my sigh of relief. <laughs> For sure. And the, the reality, the reality is, he knew that he was getting lost occasionally. He had a couple of little fender benders, mm-hmm. and I think he was relieved to have somebody taking him. So the bottom line of this. It wasn't just how you take a car away. What was the philosophy behind it? And the philosophy was not now versus never. And that became something that I looked at 
everything that was that kind of a situation, I applied it over and over. The biggest one I applied, and probably the most important one, was we had this marvelous housekeeper, Lisette, and she was with us for 15 years, and then she became his chief caregiver and trained everybody in the house. I like so, the fact that all the caregivers had to pass through her first. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. And she was right every time. Over the she, was your, days, she was your screener. <laughs> yeah, she, absolutely. And she adored him because he was kind. He was 80 to her. He was treated her like a human being. And he was kind and gentle and interested in what she was doing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if she had come into the bedroom and said with a big, bright, cheery voice, Mr. Berger, your breakfast is ready. I said, isn't that lovely? Isn't that, that's great. She never did that. She would come into the room, and the first time I heard it, my jaw dropped. Mr. Berger, are you ready for breakfast? And I thought, oh, my gosh, what a difference. In one is a question, he's in command, he gives the answer. In the other, no matter how sweetly you say it, your breakfast is ready is an implied command. You have to come now and eat. Yeah. And I applied that constantly. I almost never told him what to do. Honey, do you think you want to go to the bathroom before we leave for the doctor's office? Would you rather do Sudoku after dinner? Would you rather do some drawing? Almost every single thing I said was in the form of Lisette's question. You know, grown men particularly, women as well, people who have success in life, they're used to being in charge, they're used to telling people what to do. All of a sudden, they're being told when they have to go to the bathroom, when this, and they fight back. They're not used to that. Men or women, when you're used to being your own boss and you're suddenly told what you have to do, it doesn't have good results. And so that's what started. You asked me what changed. That's what started the changes. But I guess the main answer I have for you, the main theme throughout the book is that the way we respond makes the difference. Mm -hmm. And I think in all cases, people know when their memory is deficient, not even with Alzheimer's, whatever it is. They know when they're declining. And as I found with 80, although his memory certainly was deficient, there was a heightened sensitivity to my mood, my tension, my mm-hmm. frustration. For example, if he asked the question many times, in the beginning, I did what everybody does by the fourth or fifth time when they ask the same question, where are you going tonight? You either raise an eyebrow or you take a big inward breath, implying I told you that a thousand times. Right. Dear, I'm going to the ballet with Elaine, meaning uh, I just told you that. And I saw when I did that, that it was a punch in the gut for him. And I loved this man. And I saw how what I did affected him. And I said, I'm not doing that anymore. Mm. I will not do that to him anymore. Mm. And if it was the sixth, the seventh, or the eighth time, my response was, sweetie, I'm going to the ballet with Elaine. And he said, oh, yeah, I remember. And I didn't belittle him by my own frustration, my own reaction. I think that was one of the hardest things that I had to do. Well, it takes such concentration and discipline. I mean, you're really forced to confront your own methods of communication. Exactly. Um, So... I just want to say that what helped me, and it became much easier with time when I saw the result. Right. But I also developed a mantra for myself in the very beginning, and that was that if he remembered... He wouldn't be asking. How right. can I be annoyed? Because that's, because... that's in the book, too, right? Yeah. That resonated when I read that in particular. We'll have more of our conversation with Helene after this break. The AgeWise podcast is about to enter its fifth year of production. 
I started the show after writing a memoir called Scattered, my year as an accidental caregiver. The book captures the first roller coaster year of caring for my then 80-year-old mother after my father's sudden death. In the midst of grief and career transition, I moved back into my childhood home to rebuild two lives at once, my mother's and my own. Lots of books about caregiving are advice-oriented, but with Scattered, the reader dives in and has the lived experience of a daughter scrambling to keep up with the demands of her own life and the needs of her elderly parent. Scattered is available to buy online and at bookstores, but if you want to check it out before buying, you can download the first 30 pages for free. Just go to agewise.com, that's A-G-E-W-Y-Z.com, Sign up with your email address at the bottom of the page, and you'll get a link to the first 30 pages of the book. Thanks so much for listening to this show over the years. Something else that was really moving was when you were in a situation, I can't remember specifically what it was, but you had a friend who said, look, everybody loves AD. Don't try to cover for him. This is something that we often do inadvertently. We try to cover for the person who has Alzheimer's or any form of dementia. And I think this is as much about covering for ourselves as we are covering for the other person, Absolutely. right? So, so what? That, that was before the diagnosis, right? Clearly, that was earlier on. So, instead of trying to cover for him, you adopted a more authentic approach of letting go and letting it be what it was, sort of thing. And the, re- the reward for that, when I wasn't hiding it, is I learned so much from so many people who came and taught me things. Whatever the situation was, I listened and I learned and I didn't feel alone anymore. It's right. basically what AgeWise does. When you share what you've got with others, you're no longer alone. And that's precisely what you do. One of the many points you make in this great book is that you talk about your sense of having a dual mission. Yeah. You had this dual mission of both supporting your husband and seeking joy every day. So how did you manage to strike a balance between fulfilling your own needs and his? My niece said that was her favorite chapter in the book. Well, it's one that a lot of people struggle with. You know, it's interesting. Um, I at first, this is going to sound awful, but at first I was almost embarrassed if I was invited to something that I knew he wouldn't do well at. If I went myself, at first I was so embarrassed. What will people think? Which should be the last question in our minds ever in life. If you go with him or if you go alone? No, no, if I went alone. Okay. Okay. No, I, I didn't subject him to things that I knew would not help if I went myself, I thought, what will people think? And the opposite happened. People I barely knew would come to me and say, Helene, you are handling this so well. And that helped me. And the same doctor that I went to when I was having difficulties with AD, I continued to see. And she encouraged me, make time for yourself, make alone time. And I believed her because she was very, very wise. And I was encouraged professionally, take time for yourself. You cannot be there 24-7. And the reality is, when I think of it, I really haven't thought of this before. He did first three and a half years no help. In the last two and a half years, he fractured his hip, and I had no choice. I couldn't lift him. I just had no choice. And although he started making progress before, his greatest progress was when I had the time to get out and play a game of tennis. But more I took a few hours each day, I came back whole and ready to be with him and give him my all. If it's 24-7, one of you is going to crash. Yeah. It's not possible, but we don't believe that, especially if we're successful women or men and we think we can handle the world. We mm-hmm. can't. We need time <laughs> to rejuvenate and to be whole, to sit down and read a book or to meditate or do something. We need that 
separation. Mm -hmm. So those first three and a half years after his diagnosis, when you chose not to have any additional help, must have been really hard on you. What's your take on why it took you so long to reach the conclusion that you did need help? It wasn't until he had an accident and I had no choice. Very simple. And even when I had help, I never had help at night. I wanted to be near him. I wanted our time together. So what sort of strategies did you employ for hiring the right aides? Give us some interview tips. Okay, I will tell you the most difficult job of my entire years living with Alzheimer's was finding the right person. And there's a chapter on what to look for in an interview and how to let them go when they're not working, which I found very difficult in the beginning. I thought I could change things. In the beginning, I had great difficulty letting someone go. I just wasn't in my nature. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, you're worrying about them. Worry about your husband. Mm-hmm. He comes first. And if it's not working out, you let them go. And in the beginning, I try to let them go gently. And then the final one, who was really Tahara, she roughly changed him, didn't say, how was your nap? Nothing. I thought, she is out of here. And uh-huh. I was furious. <laughs> and I didn't say a word because I thought she'd be very vindictive. She went home. And she was off the next day, and I called her in the morning and said, I need you to come in. Why? I said, I need to talk to you. Why? I said, I need to talk to you. And then she came in, and I took her in another room. I said, this is not working out for me. Why? Like a broken record. Sorry. And I knew any reason I gave her, she would fight me on. I didn't want to fight. And I handed her a check for next week's salary. And she left in such a huff. But I mean, that was the worst. But by then, I was tough enough and had learned I didn't have to give her any reason. My reasons were my reasons. It just wasn't working for me. So So earlier you said that you really didn't set out to write a book. Tell us a bit about how the book took shape. (laughs) Okay. Every time I did something that worked, I mostly at concerts, we went to concerts three or four times a week. And mostly at concerts, I would sit there, look for a blank page in the concert program so I could write a note in case I had any thoughts. <laughs> you were so diligent. No, <laughs> it was ready just in case. I started writing these notes to myself so I could remember for me, only for me. I never dreamed about a book so I could remember what mm-hmm. worked. Mm-hmm. And so many people saw the change. I mean, here's a man who the last night of his life We never dreamed it was going to be the last night. He was doing beautifully. I took 17 people to dinner, our friends. I never told them ahead of time, so-and-so's coming. And we got there, and the last night of his life was six years of Alzheimer's. He greeted every single person by name. Hmm. Unheard of, as you know better than... Hmm. And he sits in his wheelchair, and he raises his glass to make a toast of water he never drank. Not since Dartmouth, where he got drunk on beer one night. He never had another drink. (laughs) And he raises his glass, and he makes the most coherent, articulate toast, thanking his friends, our dear friends, for their coming, for their attention, for their phone calls, for their kindness, for taking care of me. And two of my close friends, after the dinner, came to me and said exactly the same words, are you sure he has Alzheimer's? So let's go back to how the book took shape. (laughs) Sorry. That's okay. So friends kept asking me questions. And when friends kept talking to me and seeing the result, I suddenly said, I have a book here. And I've got, you even got the notes. In fact, I went to Dr. Drawer. He was the one who diagnosed 80, right? 
Yeah, he was the head of the Wien Center for Memory Disorder, the state-of-the-art center. Mm-hmm. And we finally got the appointment with him. He loved ADM. Everybody did. But he saw the progress himself in the testing. He knew it. And when I said to Dr. Dwar, you know, I'm thinking of doing a book. He said, my suggestion is I'm going to give you the names of some magazines. Do it an article at a time. You'll never do a book because most people have these bright ideas and never do it. And then I think part of it was, you thought I wouldn't. I'm doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, it's a big undertaking. Tremendous. tremendous. Did you have any idea it would be so hard or, or was it hard? Well, yes, it was hard. But the same doctor that I continued to see, when I told her, I said, I have a wild idea. She absolutely encouraged and encouraged when she knew I wasn't doing it. She said, Helene, you have something of real value to give to the world, and you've got to do it. And her confidence in me made me realize that I really could. And don't forget, although I never wrote a book, I've been speaking for 40 years around the country. I've had these major positions in different organizations, and I've been writing speeches for 40 years. Indeed. I was going to ask you about that in this context, which is that becoming a caregiver often happens suddenly, and it can be disorienting and overwhelming. But oftentimes, I think people are better prepared for it than they realize. And so people don't know this from my show, but you have held major and demanding positions of leadership throughout your life. So my question was, how do you think that your past experiences provided what turned out to be what you refer to as a crucial underpinning to your role as a caregiver and to your success with this book? Because I know that you've had these demanding positions of leadership. So I think they prepared you. Well, that's an interesting question I've never asked myself. And I think the fact that people chose me for these positions gave me the confidence. And I really didn't have that much confidence as a kid. But with each role that I took on, and some of them were major national roles, I began to understand that I was pretty good. (laughs) And so I found that I wasn't coming to it with a blank slate. My Mm -hmm. background and what I did let me think that, yes, I could do it. And I knew, I make this very clear in the book, I don't promise anyone in this book that they're going to have this kind of success. There's no way I could, and it's not going to happen. Each relationship is different. What I do suggest is that if one follows the things that work for me, the odds are their lives together will be easier, more fulfilling, and better. The whole point of the book is really the more we can allow those we care about to preserve their dignity, and the more we can give praise and support, just like when we were kids, the more they're going to succeed. The most important message that I hope the book leaves the readers with is that we're not automatically the hapless victims of fate, that we're not powerless, and that our actions can make a difference in the one who we're caring about. Our actions can change their lives and our own. Mm -hmm. I saw the change. I saw how we, and not me, we together turned it around. I remember in that chapter about the inappropriate behavior, when I was getting reports back from caring friends that my husband, who never said an off-color word in his life, were making comments to women that were inappropriate. I heard it, and I thanked them, and then I heard it myself. I took a deep breath, never said a word to him, mm-hmm. and came home and started my usual beginning. Honey, do you know how much I love you? Big smile. And then I said, I heard you say, I'll call her Jane. I, I heard you say to Jane tonight, I'm looking at your boobs. Mm. guilty look and then he said I'm sorry dear I won't do that again 
And then I said, honey, let's not look back. Let's look to the future. What can we come up with so that I can remind you if it should happen again? Remind you that that's inappropriate behavior. I said, let's have a secret word that I can whisper to you. And he said, what about inappropriate? I said, that's wonderful. That'll be our word. That'll be our word. So that was part of it. He was a part of the process. Mm -hmm. But equally, if not more important, when he did do it again, as he did less and less frequently, but in the beginning, often, I would squeeze his hand and whisper in his ear, inappropriate, sweetie, (laughs) with it. And he would smile and nod. And it happened less and less and less. I never said it in anger or annoyance, inappropriate behavior, dear. It was always with kindness and that we were a team pulling together. And that was the modus operandi through everything we did. And the key to that, there are two parts to that. One, that he came up with it. And secondly, the way I told him when it happened again. That's why I think we had the success. It wasn't me. And I I was fortunate enough to have a cooperative enough husband who got it Mm -hmm, and who wanted it to be easy for me as well as for him. Well, like you said, every relationship is unique and what works for some might not work for others. But there's a lot in this book that I know people are really going to benefit from. So I'm going to encourage everyone to read it. Your book includes a diary entry written just after you graduated from high school. And part of it reads, and this is a quote, I ask myself at 17, will I be happier at 70 when my face is wrinkled and my body grows stiff? And I answer, yes, I hope to be more complete at 70. So my question is, what is your life like now? And do you feel more complete? Make me cry. I feel so fulfilled I've had these major positions of responsibility that gave me tremendous sense of worth. Of all the wonderful things that I've done, nothing compares to the joy, the gratitude, the fulfillment that I got from giving my husband years of joy and dignity and contentment and acceptance mm-hmm. that this role did. Mm-hmm. And that lifted me so profoundly. I'm blessed with wonderful friends. I'm blessed with kids who are totally attentive, even though we live in different cities. Mm-hmm. And having written this book is like a fulfillment of a life. It's like, as I say, it so far surpasses all the wonderful feelings of accomplishments that I've had in my life. So that's my answer. And mm-hmm. not only do I not feel lonely, but in the last two months since the publishing and all the things that go into it, I've barely been alone for two months at least because I've been working. I want to stress that although Alzheimer's is in the title and although I write this book for one who dealt with Alzheimer's and that's where I learned what I did, this book is universal. A friend of mine, the daughter of a friend of mine, read the book and she said, I want you to know that this book has already changed the way I speak to my husband. So this book is much more than Alzheimer's, and especially for any caregiver who's dealing with anyone declining in any way, or even if they're not. We've been speaking with Helene Berger, author of the book Choosing Joy, Alzheimer's, A Book of Hope. 
which was inspired by the unexpectedly positive results that Helene's husband, Aidy, and she achieved together after his diagnosis of Alzheimer's. This is a really moving, accessible book, and as Helene mentioned, the insights can be applied not just to a loved one with Alzheimer's disease, but in caring for individuals with any type of debilitating disease. We'll have a link on the AgeWise website to Helene's book, so be sure to check that out. Helene, thank you so much for being on the show and for writing this wonderful book, which I know a lot of people will relate to and benefit from reading. Jenna, thank you so very much. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. If you like this show, if you're getting something out of it, I want you to tell your friends about it because I want everyone to know you're not alone. Your stories matter and your voices have power. So share this with your friends, share the love, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced and edited by me. I'm on Twitter at Jana Panaritis, and as always, you can leave comments on the AgeWise website. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z dot com. The AgeWise podcast is distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.